anything that smells really bad or really good, they love. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Raw Safari. Hello, hello. Welcome to the podcast that gets away with talking about sex by calling it Exhibiting Breeding Behavior, the Raw Safari Podcast. Some quick housekeeping. Don't forget to follow at Raw Safari on Insta and Facebook for fun content and daily zoo animal pics. Rossafari.redbubble.com is the place for merch, and patreon.com slash Rossafari is the place to go to support the pod. All those links can be found in the show notes each week, along with any links unique to the show, so make sure you're checking those show notes out. Also, make sure you subscribe to the show, and if you're on an app that allows it, Take the time to leave a five-star rating and maybe even write a review. It helps spread the word. Thanks. So, my dear listener, did you know that the second most successful cheetah breeding program in the world can be found in the United States? And that it's at a zoo that's kind of in the middle of nowhere? I sure didn't. When this interview was suggested to me, I had never heard of Wildlife Safari in Winston, Oregon. Heck, I had never even heard of Winston, Oregon. As I started to do some research into this facility, I was shocked to discover an AZA-accredited drive through safari that happens to breed cheetahs more successfully than any other program in the States. They also house a ton of other incredible animals, including tigers, bears, various hoofstock, lions, and so much more. As I looked into this zoo, I quickly went from having never heard of it to being incredibly excited to talk to someone from there. I was put in touch with Rob Peters, and we hopped on Zoom for an exciting interview about this incredible facility. Rob is a keeper there, and he does an awesome job not only sharing his story, but talking in great detail about why the Wildlife Safari Cheetah Breeding Program is so successful, and also sharing some great tales about the four lions he takes care of. Lion tails are definitely one of the main attractions in this episode. Get it? Tails? Manes? Lions have those? Hello? Is, is this thing on? Anyway, as I mentioned, Wildlife Safari is known for its cheetah breeding program. What it's not known for is its incredible Wi-Fi. Fortunately, Rob was really accommodating and repeated a few of his answers for me, so you will be able to hear everything he had to say, but thanks for being cool about any pops or slight audio issues you hear because of the connection. So, without further ado, here is my interview with Rob Peters of Wildlife Safari. Alright, so tell me who you are, where you work, and what you do there. Yeah, uh, my name is Rob Peters. I am a carnivore keeper here at Wildlife Safari in Winston, Oregon. I've been here in total a little over a year now. I got hired on last January. I started as an intern in September or last September. And then so I've been working here just about a year in total. We work with, uh, we do cheetahs, bears, lions, and tigers. So what I like to say, the best animals. So, nice, uh, nice. yeah, so that's what I work with daily. You know, we do a lot of training, feeding, all, all those fun things. 
Very cool. Um, how did you get to this place in your life? How did you become a keeper? Yeah, it's like a really crazy story. Like personally, for me wise, like cause I went to college, I got a four year degree in environmental science, but initially I wanted to be actually a teacher and stuff. So I did the first year of doing that and then kind of realized I was like, you know, I think I like animals a little bit better than people at this point. So I've been working, <laughs> I've been working at um, zoos, like through high school and stuff, just doing guest services and like, you know, um, like uh, giving tours and stuff like that. And so I'd always been around zoos and thought they were pretty cool. And then one of my friends asked me, he's like, you ever want to make like a career out of that? I was like, I never really thought of it, I guess. But, you know, that's not a bad idea. So then I changed my major going into sophomore year and and uh, I always wanted to do something in a zoo or maybe like in like national park sort of thing. And then I ended up with an internship out here. I had just graduated college a little over a year ago. And I realized um, if there's a time to get out and see things and do something new, it's when I'm young. So I'm like, I'm from Iowa originally. So I'm out here in Oregon, which is quite a bit different. Not only in, uh, there's actually mountains out here, <laughs> you know, it's not all flat. So it's definitely been a change like that, but that's kind of how I ended up out here. It's, there's a lot of weird moving pieces. Like actually I ended up meeting my boss beforehand before I even knew about his position and I didn't realize it. So it's like, a really small world in the zoo world, actually. Definitely. Very cool. Very cool. And tell me what it's like to just get off your butt and go to a whole new place and experience like starting over. So um, I ended up out here in Oregon. I was actually originally born in Texas and moved up to Iowa and stuff. So it was, it was a little tricky, you know, moving out of the area and away from family and friends because, like, I grew up with a really big family. There, I had three brothers and two sisters. We were all really close. And it was a little tricky coming out here at first, but my intent when I first came out here was just to stay for about three months, like do my three-month internship and then move back. But then that turned into a six-month internship, which actually eventually turned into living here permanently and working here. So it was, like, a very kind of – honestly slow release in our like animal terms in terms of um kind of bringing me out here is you know nice slow start and then like now i'm here permanently and it was it was a little tricky because you know i got a lot of friends back home and family but it's honestly like if there's a time in your life to move but you got way less baggage you got a lot less stuff to take with you not only physically but also mentally you know it's it's a cool experience coming out here and i honestly don't regret it at all that's great. Very cool. Very cool. Um, nice. So are you close to any of the cities out there? I've been to Oregon, but only to like the Portland area. Yeah. So we are like 15 minutes south of Roseburg, which is like the biggest city near us. But Roseburg is honestly in like a super cool place. You can go an hour north and get to Eugene. So like that's where the like, University of Oregon is, or you can go three hours north and get to Portland. You can go an hour west and you get to the coast. You can go about two hours east and get to Crater Lake. So it's like there's a lot of kind of interesting things all in the area. And um, like what I hadn't realized like is so nice about being out here is just how easily accessible just like nature and everything is. So like you can literally go 20 minutes east here and like you're in the Umpqua National Forest and there's like there's a whole lot of stuff there. Because I'm a big fishing and camping kind of guy. And so it's honestly been awesome doing all that. Very nice. That's yeah. It's so beautiful out in Oregon. I, I love the Pacific Northwest a lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So, all right, let's talk about this place that you're working at. What is the name of it again? 
Yeah, so I'm at a wildlife safari in Winston, Oregon, actually. All right. And wildlife safari is kind of famous for something. So tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. What we are uh, most commonly known for is our cheetah breeding, actually. So we are number two in the world in cheetah breeding, only second to actually one in Africa. So we like to say they have home field advantage in that aspect. <laughs> but um, so yeah, we've had 220 cheetahs born here. So that's a pretty big number because it's really interesting the more you get into it and understand more about cheetahs because cheetahs are just very finicky and like very difficult to breed because they have to be very comfortable in their setting they have to be you know everything's cool everything you know is comfortable because they can be very easily a high stress animal if they're not in the right environment or getting the right care so it's really interesting when you look at our numbers and success that we've had with our breeding i think it's a really good like testament that we are doing a lot of good stuff here in terms of they're very comfortable because in order for a cheetah to be, you know, to breed, they have to be super comfortable. So that just shows that they're in a good situation and doing well. Uh, we recently just, so this year in 2020, we have had two litters. We had one litter of four cubs and one litter of a single cub. And um, the litter of four, they're actually still here at the park. They're with the mom. And we actually gained two in that process. It's a really cool thing we were able to do a facility down in Texas at uh, Fossil Rim, they actually, um, one of their litters gave birth to um, a, a group of, or a litter of cubs, and the mother wasn't taking to them and everything, so then they actually had to send them out to us, because our litter was just a couple weeks before them, so they actually were able to sneak them into our um, mother's litter, and uh, they were able to uh, the mother took to them like they were her own. So it's really cool how they're able to do that. So, you know, they're not related, but they definitely seem like it. That's amazing. Very cool. And I know that generally when um, there is a single cheetah uh, cub, it needs to be hand reared. Is that what you guys do as well? Yeah. In a lot of situations, that is definitely like we got really lucky with ours. So like I said, our um, one of our cheetahs had a single cub and everything, but we got really lucky because actually literally just a couple of days after that one was born, there was a litter born at that same, that fossil. Oh, okay. Rim. That's where you got the ones from fossil rim. So they were raised together. I'm sorry. I, with the, with the, uh, zoom, I missed that connection. That's really cool. No. Yeah. Sorry. The single cub that we had, we actually took down to them and they got our single cub. We got two. Of, so it was a weird, like, gotcha. uh, swap. <laughs> yeah, it was, very interesting. The 36 hour drive down there was a little exhausting, but, uh, <laughs> I bet. What was the, uh, what was the name of the cub that went down there? The one that went down there, her name was Kubwa actually. And we, our group that took her down there, me, uh, my boss, Sarah Roy, and one of our vet students actually got to take her down there. And we actually got to pick her name out on the drive and everything. And it's actually Swahili for large or big because, she was a really big girl when she was born. She was a lot bigger than most cubs that we have here. That's awesome. My girlfriend is a fourth-year vet student at Penn Vet right now and wants to be a zoo vet and is actually currently doing an externship at Fossil Rim. Um, oh, yeah? She just spent the day with the, the cheetah cubs down there like yesterday as we're recording this. So she might have she might have gotten to hang out with your uh, your little friend there. Yeah, yeah. I actually did get mine mixed up. We we got our two from Fossil Rim. We sent our one to Caldwell Zoo in Texas. I'm getting the oh, Texas okay. facility. My bad. So no worries. Yeah, no we, worries. we took there it are a down. lot down there. 
Yeah, yeah, really cool places though. It was, it was really cool getting in touch with them because they're all they were kind of new to the situation in terms of they didn't know um, how well this whole process goes in terms of like the fostering of cheetah cubs. And like my boss even said, cause they were asking her like, okay, I need you a step-by-step plan of how this is going to go down and like what we need to do. And she was like, I wish I could tell you it's some grand scheme that we do, but you literally take the cub in, put it with the other, cu- like you move the mom out of the area, you take the cub, put it in with the other cubs, maybe spread some, um, of the scent on them and then you leave and the mother comes back in and she takes right to it. So it's kind of funny that they do that so well. That's really interesting. Very cool. So um, tell me a little bit about why y'all think you're so successful. I mean, I know that you said it's because they're comfortable, but go deeper than that. What, what are you guys doing that makes them so comfortable and makes you guys so successful at cheetah breeding? Yeah, yeah, definitely a good question with that. And so in our breeding area, we have like our drive-through area because we are like a drive-through park. You drive your car through, and we have our cheetah, um, like our cheetah world is what we call it. And in that area, you can see a lot of our like drive-through cheetahs and stuff. Those ones aren't necessarily going to be breeding, but up away from everyone, we do have our like breeding facility, and that's where we have like our more like ones that are going to be breeding and everything. And what's different with that area is it's way up on the side of the hill, way high up. And with cheetahs, because they have extremely good vision, they can see like a couple of miles away, crystal clear. It's honestly, I can't begin to understand how that works and everything, but it's crazy. So they love being up on top of the hill and they can actually look out across our park or across the park and everything. And of course, we don't know exactly what's going through their head, but we like to think they can see out and they can see a lot of the other animals. Like we have um, like fallow, which are like a European deer sort of thing. We have a lot of like, you know, deer animals out in that area and they can look out there and see and they maybe are thinking like, I have food readily available. I have a lot of space here. I, you know, there's no threats, anything. I'm really comfortable with this. All right, we can go forward with this breeding process and stuff. So we're able to put them up on a hill where they can be away from everyone. They're very comfortable with what's going on. They can, you know, they have food readily available, whether they think it as the deer or the food that we deliver yeah. to them. <laughs> Either way, they're thinking that this is a pretty good setup. I think I'm ready to do this. And our my boss Sarah like she's been she's been here at the park for just about 20 years now and she's had like a huge amount of success with it and it's a whole process that we do in terms of not only um do humans like we like to um try to keep consent and everything but we actually in a way do that with the cheetahs so what we do is say we have a girl cheetah and normally right around two to three age uh, the age of two or three is when they begin their breeding process and everything So what we do is we're monitoring her around when she gets to that age and we notice if she's like scent marking, that's like a for sure sign that one of the girls is cycling or going through estrus. At that moment, if we notice any signs, you know, like ear flicking, tail flicking, those are all very minute signs that she could be cycling and everything. So we'll have her in that yard and we'll actually move her to a different yard, like maybe next door or, you know, a couple of yards down. And then we will actually bring in the male that we're going to be breeding with her. We bring him in to the yard she was just in. And he walks around, he starts smelling everything. And he can actually pick up on her pheromones and the scent, like if she is cycling. And so he, once he gets that scent, um, he just starts like calling for her. It's called like a stutter bark. And I'll try to mimic it, but it's, I'm not too good at it. But um, it's a really weird noise, like very high pitched. And they just start like hollering for the girl. Like I smell this girl. She's ready to breed based on the smell that I have here. 
And so, like, let's get this thing going. So we notice that he's on the same page. And then we'll move the girl into a yard next to him and make sure she acknowledges that he's like, this is going to go down. And then at that moment, do we let them together and go forward the breeding process? So not only do I feel we have the like particular facility and like land space and like geographical, you know, topography and stuff that's ideal for cheetahs, but I think this is the knowledge that we have on our team and the procedures that we do with these cheetahs to make sure that they're, you know, as cool as possible with going forward with this is definitely what we got going. Makes sense. See that kids consent is important (laughs) at at all levels. That's, that's great. That's, that's a really cool um, process that you guys use. I I like that. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, So were, was cheetah breeding something that was on your radar when you decided to start this career? Were you like, I just want to help big cats have sex. (laughs) You know, it's like the aspect that like, was drawing me to here. Like, not only did I want to check out Oregon, like I'd always like it always been like kind of in the back of my head. But when I first checked out the website, because I had found that they were, you know, um, accepting interns and everything off of the AZA website, which is where they have all the like listings for internships and stuff. And so I'd go through, and I I preferred I wanted to work as carnivores. I love cats, and like we get to work with bears. Also, I love bears, so it's like I love those big scary animals and so when i saw and checked out the page and they're like all about cheetahs i'm like cheetahs are pretty sick like i like those and everything then i went more into it and just realized like it's crazy the things that are going on here in terms of like you know it's little winston oregon like who really thinks much is going on here but we got like a really cool facility going so it's it was definitely just kind of a perk coming here like the draw of like getting to work with all these like different animals and like really cool animals and then not only the diversity of those animals but then also we have like cheetah ambassadors like that we get to work with so taking cheetahs on walks and all things like that like it's hard not to want to be drawn to this place and work here so it's when i like honestly i say it all the time like i've been here for a little over a year now and i can maybe count like three times in the whole time at the end of the day I was like that day kind of sucked like that wasn't very fun I'm a pretty simple guy and I enjoy just about anything but it's the diversity of what you're gonna do just makes it so much cooler than I feel a lot of facilities out there very cool and tell me um are you one of the facilities that uses dogs with your cheetahs at all yeah absolutely so right now we do have one um cheetah puppy dog duo and they actually just turned two just last week. Their names are KJ and Rhino. They have, yes, like, I'm sure a lot of people know kind of the deal with the dogs and cheetahs. But um, so we introduced them when they were about eight weeks old. So at that age, you know, they're able to kind of recognize each other. And they really didn't see anything different between the two of them. They started playing right away. So it's a pretty cool story with our dog, Rhino. So we actually got him from uh, Saving Grace Animal Shelter here in Roseburg. And it was really crazy because we had actually reached out to them beforehand because we knew we were going to be getting KJ, our cheetah, fairly soon. And like we were trying to set up like getting, you know, a puppy dog that's right around the same age as him. And we were sending it out to actually a bunch of um, animal shelters and stuff all through Oregon. And a lot of people are like coming back like it's you know, we don't hardly ever get puppies. Like it's, it's tough to get puppies and stuff. And, you know, if we get anything, we'll let you know, but it's really uh, low chances that we'll, that we will get them. And then literally like perfect timing, 
uh, Rhino and his brother Gator, actually, they got turned into the uh, animal shelter there. They're actually found on the side of the road and somebody ended up taking them to the uh, animal shelter there. And they were like the people at the um, Saving Grace animal shelter. They were like ecstatic because like they're like, this is perfect. So they intentionally named him Gator and Rhino, like in hopes that we would choose them. Like, <laughs> we're excited about it. And so we got we adopted both of them and we put them, you know, when after their like mandatory quarantine and stuff, we they we put them together. We put KJ and Rhino and uh, Gator all together and right away Rhino and KJ were like hitting it off, playing right away, like best buddies, like didn't even see anything different between them. And then Gator, he was actually better friends with our uh, my supervisor Sarah, so she ended up adopting him eventually actually. So it's both of them have a really cool life now. Rhino is probably a little more unique in the aspect. He lives with a, a cheetah all the time, and they're a ball of fun. Like they're like KJ. He's a cat, so you know he he goes his own pace. He, uh, you know he, you know he'll love you when you're around, and that's the cool thing. Rhino, he is uh, he is full of energy all the time, and he's he's a maniac, honestly. That's awesome. What kind of dog is Rhino? Rhino is actually a straight up mutt. He's about a mix of everything combined for a hundred percent perfection is what we like to say. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's, he's a little smaller than typically the dogs that we'll do with cheetahs. Like a lot of times the common ones like Anatolian shepherds that we'll do a lot of time or um, yeah, those bigger breeds and stuff like that. Um, Rhino based off of like the, when we DNA tested him, he like, he had a little bit of everything. Like he had some Rottweiler, he had Staffshire Terrier, he had all these things and stuff. So our projection on how big he would be, we thought he would be, a good amount bigger than he is, but he is, he's right around 45 to 50 pounds right now. While KJ is about 95 pounds. So he's, he's a smaller dog, but he honestly, he runs the show between the two of them. Like, yeah, a lot of people are like, Oh, is the cheetah's going to hurt the dog or something. But no, I, I worry more about Rhino. Rhino, you know, if he has a bone or something, KJ's, you know, button in a little bit, Rhino lets him know. So, you know, at least he's got the uh, tough spirit to uh, handle a cheetah. <laughs> That's awesome. And I think maybe we're going to start to see um, what's the standard change a little bit, because I know uh, Remus at Cincinnati is also a total mutt and is is smaller than you would expect and um, is absolutely doing great with Chris there. So I think that's that's two recent examples in the last two years of kind of cool shelter mutts, you know, doing a great job. So maybe it has more to do with personality than size. And maybe yeah, we'll see yeah. more of that. Yeah, because uh, a big thing, one of the reasons why we wanted to get it from Animal Shelter is just kind of promote, you know, adopting dogs and stuff like that. Like, it's a really cool thing. So when people come up, we can tell them, hey, yeah, Saving Grace Animal Shelter. They got a, a good thing going. You should definitely check them out. So it's not only, you know, cool that we're able to put them with a cheetah, but get the word out that, you know, adopting is a really good thing. Love that so much. So tell me how many cheetahs you guys have right now. Yeah, right now, currently, counting our six cubs, we have 23. So, <laughs> so many cheetahs. That's awesome. I know, yeah, a lot of people react like that. Like that's, I'm like, yeah, I guess that is quite a bit. But like the amount of space we have, it's it's just awesome. Like in our drive-thru area, our drive-thru, I'd say, has a majority of our cheetahs right now. We have the mom or Delta and the six cubs. So there's like, you know, seven right there, easy. And then we have about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, probably like about eight more cheetahs in that area. So then the rest of them are up and breeding. And those are, are like more specifically like really high genetically valuable cheetahs that we have there. So um, 
I can mention about like, so the, in terms of deciding what Cheetos are more valuable and whatnot, isn't just on who's handsomest. It's actually nothing to do with that. Actually, even though I do have my personal favorites, <laughs> it's actually all based on their kind of um, their genetic variety and stuff. So they have a whole way of judging that and everything. They have two different ways that they really do it. There's one called the mean kinship test. And that one, actually, they take the whole database of all cheetahs in like the AZA program or all different um, like accreditations that have cheetahs and are part of the breeding program, uh, the SSP, the Species Survival Plan. They take all of them and they're able to run their DNA. And I don't know the specifics on the science numbers side of it, but I do know that they take all the numbers and they actually, it's essentially like a matchmaking service in terms of they try to find the most distantly related cheetahs possible. So they run their DNA and they actually, you know, match them up like that on a scale of one to six, one being the like very, very recommended to breed. Like there's only a handful of those pairs actually in the population and stuff that get a one uh, matchup all the way down to six, meaning that they are like brother and sister sort of thing. So if you, if like right now we have a couple sets of ones actually that we're currently in the process of trying to breed and everything. And so that's the one way. And then also they have um, the, they have the whole um, set of the whole database and everything. And then they actually at a certain level in terms of um, differential between like genetic variety and stuff, they actually draw a line and everything above that line is recommended to breed and everything below that is not sort of thing. And, um, it's like a whole like matrix sort of deal. And it's, it's a, a lot of numbers and there's somebody out there who, you know, runs all those numbers. They just tell me one through six and you know, that's, you know, I, I can count the six so I can do that <laughs> job. <as> well, <laughs> that's good. I know that you said that you, uh, you played the drums for many years and as a drummer, you have to be able to count to exactly six. So I guess that really helped with your current career, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's been prepping me this whole time. I didn't realize it. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so tell me who your favorite cheetah is. My favorite cheetah? Uh, it's it's a tough one. Um, it's kind of between two. I would say there's one of them that, especially my favorite. His name is Chester, like kind of a goofy name sort of thing. But um, he, he's one of our males, and he, he's a pretty, he's a good sized guy. He's about one ten or so, between a hundred pounds and one ten, and he's just a very like goofy guy. So with with our facility, we're able to do like free contact. We're able to go in with the cheetahs and like even the mother raised ones who are not particularly fans of us. We're able to go in with them as long as we take like a rake or something, and we're able to kind of move them into different yards, like how we. Um, need them to be set up and stuff and he's he's a very he doesn't have much of a personal like space bubble like and it's not that he's you know an aggressive mean guy he just kind of walks where he wants he's like i'm going that way turn the way it's kind of watch out but he's just he's walking and everything and you know he just does what he wants and not entirely in a mean way but um also on that he's a very chatty guy like if you've ever if any, you've ever heard, you know, cheetahs talking and stuff, they're very high pitched. They can meow. They can make so many noise. They can meow. They can bark. They can chirp all kinds of weird noises. And he's always making all kinds of noises. He's a very chatty guy, very handsome dude. He kind of has like a, uh, almost like a frowny face. Like his, he has a very big eyebrow. So he always looks grumpy, but <laughs> and he's one of actually our like top breeding cats and stuff. He was actually the father to the litter of four cubs that we had here. 
And um, so, yeah, he's, he's doing really well with that. We're actually in the process of trying to breed him with another one of our females. So he's, he's really good at that stuff. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. And what is it about him that makes him your special favorite? Like, what is it that connects you to him? Uh, especially with him, I would say like in terms of like all of our animals, like I, I, like I love hanging out with the, uh, with like the guys and everything. And like Chester, I feel like we've had a good connection at first because, um, you know, the, um, in terms of moving him and everything, he's just a like easygoing guy in that sense, other than when he gets where he's going. And I, I just, I don't know if I've particularly had an experience specific that can like connect us like that. I just love kind of how he goes about his life and everything. And I really admire it and, you know, his uh, strive. That's very cool. Very cool. Um, so going back to the facility for a second, you said that you guys are a drive through safari. Um, and I think maybe some of my listeners are currently picturing driving through and cheetahs just walking up to the car and giving them a pat. That's it's not quite how that works, is it? Or is it? No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not quite. Um, but we do. We have it's like a drive-through aspect of our park and everything, and a lot of our animals, like the ungulates, so like the rhinos, giraffes, all the different kind of deer species that we have, they are you know they are roaming around. Like they can come up to your car. We have some feed booths where you can like feed some of them, everything like that. But in terms of the cheetahs, they are. Um, in their own yards and everything they do have like probably one of the things i love most about the drive-through aspect is so we have like so much land here and we're able to have these like huge yards for them that where they can be very comfortable and it's a tricky thing for a lot of people to understand they're like don't the cheetahs like need to get out and run really fast and everything and it's the best way to describe it is a cat to cat like whether it's a cheetah like you know they're not going to run unless they have to we do a really cool thing here at our park Actually, it's what we call is Cheetah Watch, and it's the first thing that we do every morning here at the park is we go up into our cheetah drive through So, like, the cheetah area is kind of a separate area. Um, we can close the entrance and the exit of that whole section of the drive through if that makes sense. And then they individually have each of their own yards up there. And every morning, we're able to close off the entrance and the exit to that area and actually let out a cheetah or group of cheetahs and they have free reign of that whole area. So in that opportunity, they, they could, you know, get going really fast. They have a lot of space, but literally every cheetah, they'll walk around, they sniff a bit, finds the corner, lays down and takes a nap. So <laughs> they, they have open space. They have all the opportunity to, you know, reach really high speeds yet. Like I say, a cat's a cat. They're going to be very lazy. They love it. They get their food hand delivered to them. Uh, we pick up their messes after them, everything like that. So, yeah, it's really cool that it's a drive-through and you get to like stay in your car the whole time, and they have much larger yards and um, spaces to roam. And I feel a lot of other facilities are able to provide just because we have an expanse amount of land and everything. But yeah, not only do I love it for like our aspect of like the cheetahs and like the animals I work with, but I do love that like so we have like elk out here. They're like some of my favorite that we have in the park, and they can roam free and come up to your car. They're very mischievous, but just the whole idea of the drive-through, I love it, honestly. Yeah, that is very cool. And I think that's something that a lot of people kind of, you know, like you said, cats are cats. And that's true of a lot of animals. I think a lot of zoo naysayers 
get this feeling that animals should have to be able to do all of their behaviors. But that would be like saying, well, humans used to have to live in caves and run and chase down and club animals to to live. So wouldn't you be happier living in a cave and having to build a fire and having to hunt for 20 hours a day? No. No, you wouldn't. You like your grocery store. You like having packages delivered to your front stoop. Oh, and yeah. you like that you can crank the heater on when you are sitting at home on a comfortable couch. And um, yeah, there aren't many humans who would choose to go back to living in the wild. And yet many people seem to think that animals need to do that. And it's, it's Yeah, interesting. yeah. Like our, like, of course, we want like our animals to be wild. We want them to be in their natural habitat, everything like that. Yet understanding like the care and everything that zoos and parks like provide for them in terms of you think about like the major needs that animals have, like they like the search in their life, they're always looking for food. They're always like wanting something to eat in terms of like, that's their main priority. Like do what I can to get a food or to get food. So like if we can easily, you know, solve that problem for them by giving them, you know, food every day and stuff like that just takes like a huge you know weight off their back in that sense. And then also you can move on to like the, Another thing that a lot of animals will be striving for is like breeding. So like that we're able to provide that for our cheetahs. And, and I feel especially like our mother Delta who had like the, um, has, is caring for the six cubs right now. Like she is really living her best life with all those kids. <laughs> she, she really likes it, especially because like we are giving them a ton of food right now because we want to make sure every cub, you know, gets their portion. I think she's really kind of taken advantage of that. Like she's, you know, put on a couple pounds since she's, you know, had the kids and she's just loving it and everything. So I think, you know, giving them the opportunity to have kids and like makes them their life like even more fulfilling and stuff like that. Not only do we give them food, we give them, you know, a mate, everything like that. And then also having the like proper means to like be comfortable in terms of the space. They have heated huts. They have like, you know, they have all the means to have a awesome life. And it's, yeah, a lot of people who don't understand the care and um, things that zoos do for these animals can uh, definitely write it off for like, they should be in the wild. Like, yeah, like the reason we have them here is to make sure they are able to stay functioning within the wild and like, you know, a healthy population out there. <laughs> Absolutely. And that is a great transition to uh, talking about cheetah conservation. So um, you had mentioned uh, in our pre-interview um, cheetah conservation in Botswana. So tell me about that. Yeah. So they're actually the, they're the ones that are ahead of us in terms of the cheetah breeding within the world. Like I said, they do have home field advantage in that aspect, but they're able to do um, some different things that we aren't particularly able to do. So they're able to actually have a slow release program in terms of, you know, they can, they can raise these cheetahs and they have the means to be able to slowly, in a way, like teach them to hunt and slowly moving them further kind of from human contact to eventually be released out into the wild. It's a very tricky thing and they're still kind of learning like the proper ways to do it and everything. But like from what I know of it, it's really cool that they're able to so they almost move them through a variety of yards in terms of like, you know, the beginning stages, maybe they're in a, like, I mean, like it's still a huge yard in terms of like acreage, but a area where they can have, you know, some human monitoring. And then as they get older and more, I guess, wild in aspect, they move them to further yards and larger ones that are like almost like slowly getting them more used to 
the wild aspect. So as they, you know, progress in their um, releasing of that, they're able to move them further along and get them to eventually be re-released. So it's a really cool thing they're able to do. Like, that's a big thing. A lot of people ask us here, they're like, are you able to like release these back in the wild? And like, unfortunately we're not able to do that in that aspect, but our purpose is like the genetic backup is what we like to say. So with like Botswana and stuff, they're able to, you know, get in the process of re-releasing them. We are breeding them to create the like healthiest genes possible. So like I said, we're breeding very unrelated pair to make the most viable offspring so that then they're actually able to take those genetics and implant them into wild cheetahs. So it's really cool that, you know, you know, Cheetah Conservation Botswana, they have their deal and everything that they're able to do that. And then we have our thing that we're able to, you know, create the um, genetic backup. So we're all in collaboration and, you know, working together. And it's a really cool thing that they're able to do in that aspect. Very cool. I love that. Um, are there any other charities or uh, conservation organizations or anything that you want to give a shout out to? Um, so like here at the park, we tell everyone that goes on the encounters and stuff, like a huge amount of your money goes into a lot of these different foundations we support. Like every year we do, um, Cheetah Conservation Botswana. Like we, that's the huge one. We send a lot of our money to that we make here at the park because we are a nonprofit. So like a lot of our money goes out to different places. Uh, there's a really good place at like, um, Cheetah Conservation Fund. They're doing a lot of really good stuff in Africa as well. I'm not as knowledgeable on them. But I do know that they, you know, they're all cheetah people, too. They definitely care about these guys a lot. Very cool. And then uh, tell me about some of the other animals that you have there that you're particularly fond of. Yeah, yeah. So, like I said, we also get to work with lions, bears, and tigers. And um, I properly, or purposely say it, not lions, tigers, and bears. <laughs> everyone, oh, my. <laughs> but, um, so probably my favorite out of those groups is like our lions like as a whole i would say the lions are my favorite i just love their like social hierarchy i love the social aspects of them like they're super impressive super intimidating when you first meet them it's like wow these guys they're bad dudes like they are testosterone driven you know crazy and like very cool like that it's very humbling experience when you first get to meet them and everything but um in particular like we have two males they're brothers and we have two females and they're both sisters the two like the four of them aren't related in that aspect but we are also in the process of breeding them as well and the two fellas we have uh, Savo and Enzi they're both eight years old and they're probably my favorite two dudes at the whole park like they're very goofy dudes like they they love when we will put different like scents in their yards like we'll put perfume in their yards we even actually get some uh, rhino feces from like our like not the dog rhino but you know the big <laughs> rhino real we, rhinos uh, yeah yeah we'll collect theirs actually put it in their yards and they go crazy for that stuff it's gross to think of but they roll all in it they're like licking it like they just love anything that smells really bad or really good they they love and they go crazy it's so funny watching them but i have like countless videos of them rolling on their back and all this stuff and it's just like that's gross, dude, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And um, what? So you were talking about lion social hierarchies a little bit. So for for people listening who don't know, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. So they are the only well, 
pretty much the only cat that lives in large social groups. Cheetahs occasionally will, like males will meet up in a group, but it's not quite the same dynamics that lions have. So like most people know the female lionesses, they're the ones that do a majority of the hunting, which like that is fair, but a lot of people, you know, bag on the fellas for not doing anything. And I got to have their back and aspect. Like they do have very important roles. Like they, they are to protect the pride. They're going to, any threat that comes by, whether it's another male lion or anything, any, um, any threat that's towards them, they're going to do that. And so they are extreme. They have super high testosterone levels. Like, um, one of our favorite things to say when we're like talking about the lines and stuff is actually, so the color of their mane, like, you know, the males have very large manes and everything. The color of that is actually determined by the amount of testosterone they have. And the females actually find that more attractive when it's darker and stuff. So, you know, Lion King, honestly, Scar would have been the more handsome one between the two of them. So, <laughs> so yeah, they're because they just have super high testosterone levels. And it's so, like the darker their mane, the more attractive they are. And that testosterone goes to, you know, in terms of defending their pride and in just physically, at, like the physical aspect of them, the males in every way are bred or like not bred, but like they are made for defending them. They're bred to like be the defenders and stuff. They have a very long reach. They're very tall cats. Like tigers are heavy, like the biggest kind of tigers and stuff are heavier than lions, but lion stature is taller. They have very long limbs to be able to fight. Their mane protects their throat and their belly from fighting everything like that. They're just super, you know, testosterone driven. I'll say it again in that aspect. And that goes into the hierarchy. But it's a really funny thing. So I'm, you know, talking all about this, how the all the guys are, you know, big bad dudes, and you know they are the top dogs in their prides. Yet with our pride, it's really interesting because the girls actually kind of run the show in that aspect. <laughs> it's it's not totally uncommon in like uh, in human care for that to happen. But the girls, they're just so like food motivated. Like they, anytime food's around, they are the first one there. The guys, they know they're like, we'll let the girls go first. Cause if I do, then I'll get smacked or if I get in there, I'll get smacked sort of thing. So the girls, they actually kind of run the show with them. And it's really interesting how they do that. Uh, the two males, they had an, a really interesting story. I can you know, tell it somewhat briefly. They were actually, their parents were actually wild born lions that were gifted to the Sheikh of Qatar. So kind of like, you know, one of their officials sort of thing over in Africa. And he actually decided to breed them, but ended up breeding them too young. And the mother didn't quite make it through the pregnancy. So then he decided he was going to hand raise them. So Savo and Enzi are two males. He was going to try hand raising them. And then he realized he was really kind of in over his head. Like he didn't have the proper means to do it. And it was, but it was really like, I admired a lot by him. Like he realized that he's like, this is really tough. I need to get these guys somewhere where they can have you know proper care and everything so he actually um, looked for like good facilities and he found the aza the association of zoos and aquariums which is what we're accredited by and they actually ended up getting sent sent stateside and like over to us and then they got sent um up here to wildlife safari where they've actually both of them have already um, had a litter themselves they bred with our two females and we're actually all of their kids have since then gone off to other facilities but we're beginning the process of breeding with them too. So it's that since they were hand raised for the first couple of months of their life and kind of bring it full circle here, I forgot I got lost in the train, but um, their temperament is a little bit different. Like they are, 
know, a little more comfortable with us. Like, of course we don't go in with them. They're still very, you know, scary, very, um, you know, a lot of teeth. And, um, but they're, you know, a little more friendly towards us in terms of they're pretty chill when we come up, they're training, they're very cool and stuff like that. But I think that definitely goes in the fact as to why the girls are more dominant over them because they're, you know, they're just, their social cues aren't a hundred percent in line with the girls and the girls are like, these guys are a little different. We can maybe run this show. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I find that fascinating. Um, that's, that's really impressive that the, uh, the gentleman who owned them realized that this was not going to work and you know, that's, that's cool. And, oh yeah. Um, that's awesome that you guys get to have. Now I'm curious. Um, so if they're all together, uh, I know that normally, you know, breeding wrecks come down from the SSP and are specific animal to animal, but I'm wondering, is it done that way there or does it not really matter since it's two brothers and two sisters? It'll be genetically whoever impregnates whomever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, so six or eight months ago, we got a recommendation for, so our two girls are Matai and Serafina. We got recommended for Serafina to breed. Um, like you said, like genetically, it wouldn't matter either way for them, but Serafina was the better mother with their last litter, like more better mother in what's convenient for us in terms of she was very food motivated. So we could easily move her out of the area so we could get in and weigh the cubs and stuff. So ideally, maybe she's not a better mother, but it was easier <laughs> for us with her. And so we got recommended for Serafina to breed. So we, she was on a birth control and we got that removed actually just a couple months ago. So it's only kind of a matter of time for her when she's going to start cycling again and hopefully have another litter. And that's the same idea with the two fellas, like either one of them can breed. Typically majority of the time Savo is the dominant one between the two of them. Like, um, NZ, like we call him the bottom banana. Like he, <laughs> He hangs out on his own when the girls are out, but when like we bring him in at the end of the day and like him and his brother are hanging out, like they're super lovey on each other, very cute and stuff. But you know, when the whole group's together, he kinda likes to hang out on his own. Like the girls, like I said, they kinda they kinda beat up on him a little bit. But um it's really interesting with the two of them. That's pretty rare with lions in general, even in captivity, and the fact that they will actually switch dominance practice like sometimes like day by day it's crazy um so but like i said majority of time savo is the dominant one then out of nowhere one day nz will come out you know he's got a you know an idea in his head he's like i'm gonna be the top guy today and like it's the more you work with them the more you can notice it but it's just by their body language alone and who's essentially who's sitting closest to the girls is generally who the top dog is at the time and stuff <laughs> and so then enzi will be you know top dog for a couple weeks and then savo I, I i like to think that they have it in their head like okay you take a couple weeks then i'll take a couple weeks and but I, whether that's actually going on i don't know but um it's they're really cool dudes in that aspect which is and that's really different how their um hierarchy goes between the two of them <laughs> Very interesting. That's fascinating. Cool. All right. Well, so it is time for the Ross Safari poop story. So what do you got for me? Well, I have to get a little background in it first. So we will collect fecals from them for about two weeks so we can get a baseline of what their pheromones and their hormone levels are. So for like two weeks, every like for every day for two weeks, we're getting a fecal sample from, you know, the cheetah that we're going to have breeding so we can send them out to a place and they actually run the hormones and they're able to you know, tell, um, if she's cycling or things like that. And so I had 
you know, what we do is we pick up the fecal sample and then with like with our gloves, of course, and then we glove it in terms of we take our glove off with the fecal in the glove sort of thing. And I, you know, I did that and everything and I, my hands were full like of everything. So I put it, I, with the, in the glove still, I put it in my back pocket because I, my hands are full and then later not thinking about it, I took a seat down and I was like, that was pretty squishy. <laughs> and I, It stayed in the gloves. That was good, but it was just not an unsettling feeling. Not, not cool, <laughs> but I stayed clean for, you know, the most of it. So that was good. <laughs> nice. Very cool. Uh, anything else that you want to say before we part ways here? Uh, no, I just uh, appreciate you having me on here. Absolutely, man. Have a great day. Thank you. Okay, so this is obviously the part where I always tell you where to check out the uh, zoo that we've talked about um, on Instagram and online. And of course, I'm going to do that. But I cannot stress enough that if you go to at wildlife.safari on Instagram, not only can you just see their normal content, but you can actually see pictures of the trip that Rob talked about where he took uh, Paca's cub to Caldwell Zoo in Texas. And it is just amazing to see that. Also, there are just a ton of really, really cute baby cheetah photos on this page. So make sure you check it out. Also, you can find them on the internet at wildlifesafari.net. And as for me, well, I'm going to get excited about the Stider. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Ross Safari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ross Safari, on the web at rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.